Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Hey, listeners, just a content warning up top. This episode does deal with some violent topics, including aggression towards babies, including aggression towards other animals, dogs. It's It gets a little bit gory. So if that's not for you, please skip it. We'll see you next week. All right, everybody. I did a little episode about predatory drift, and it caused some feelings, and I'm actually really excited about it because it caused some really good, interesting conversations with some colleagues. I've got my friend and colleague, repeat guest, Lisa Mullinax here with me. We're going to talk about predatory drift in dogs a little bit more in depth. Lisa, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm going to start. First of all, if you haven't heard the first one, please stop this and go listen to the first one. We will link it in the notes for you. In the first one, I did define it, but I'm going to redefine it here. So predatory drift, this is a direct quote from Jean Donaldson. She is not the creator of the term. Ian Dunbar is, but she popularized the term. And her definition is, she says, predatory drift is the kicking in of predatory reflexes in an interaction that begins as a social interaction. And that's pretty much what we are talking about. And remember that social does not mean friendly. Social is defined as relating to society or its organization. So in this case, society being kind of Dogs and each other, recognizing that they are both dogs. So whether, you know, we've got a Great Dane or a Chihuahua, they're both dogs and they see each other as dogs. Importantly, and this was Lisa's idea, we're going to define predation as well. So predation is defined just by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and I kind of checked this against a couple of different biological and ethological sources the killing of one organism by another for food is how predation is defined in basically every species except for sometimes dogs. <laughs> and <laughs> as I've said a few times before, if dogs are the exception, I want you to question that exception. I think dogs are very unique and very special. And of course they are. And sometimes they are the exception. But if dogs are the exception to kind of a rule in biology, I always want you to question it. Lisa, you and I talked about some specific examples from your life and from your caseload that we could probably call predatory drift if we wanted to. And so I want to dig, we're going to dig into two different situations because I'm going to stand firm in believing that predatory drift is not real. (laughs) But... (laughs) These two cases made me question that 
And I love that because I actually am standing firmer in it now through that questioning. And I think that that's just kind of the definition of a science mindset. Keep questioning in light of information, right? So let's, let's talk first about your personal dogs and that incident that happened. Okay. So this was when Simon, AKA the hell beast was, I want to say he was four, between four and six months old. Okay. So juvenile to adolescent and from eight weeks old, he had been living with me and I had another adult cattle dog, Kaylee, who was absolutely incredible with him. Probably the only reason he stayed in my house. They slept together. She groomed him. Uh, they played beautifully together. They had a very and a little backing up just a tiny bit. These are both dogs that you acquired through shelters that you were working for. And when yes. you got you had Kaylee as an adult when Simon came into your home as a foster. And how old was Simon? Because he was really really eight young. Weeks. He was eight, eight weeks when he came in. Yeah, he was younger than that in the shelter. Correct when you first yes. told me about yes. this hell beast that you were probably going to need yes. to foster because he was not going to be safe <laughs> for general society. Because <laughs> he was, in in my um, professional opinion, weird. Yeah. Very weird. <laughs> and I concur right. when you told me about him. Right. So, okay. So she acted very maternally towards him. Very much. She... Yes, she altered her play style to adjust to him very, very much. So this is, I mean, we can call this very, very much a social relationship between these two dogs. This yes. was not, yes. this was not only do I recognize you as a dog, but I recognize you as a puppy and I'm taking, mm -hmm. kind of taking care of you as a puppy. And yes. so then he fast forward, he's four or five months old. What happened? It was one, just a normal evening, and Simon started to enter a bathroom that was his little kennel area, where I had a baby gate uh, that had a swinging door. And he started to walk in there and changed his mind and backed out of the baby gate. And <laughs> that's, the most, for, that's just the most Simon. <laughs> then he changed his mind. <laughs> Y'all, if you haven't heard the episode about living with difficult dogs with Lisa, in which yeah. we really talk about Simon, you're going to want to go check yeah. that one out too. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. He changed <laughs> He changed his mind and started backing up. And so he backed up quickly and in doing so, caught the swinging gate, maybe on his collar, maybe on his humongous ears, and caused it to close around his neck. Oh my gosh. And latch. Yeah. Okay. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I was in the living room. So I was just around the corner. I heard the sound of the gate, but I didn't watch him. And next thing I know, there is tremendous screaming, flailing. I look around the corner to see a puppy who looks like he's about to break his neck, trying to escape from this thing. But so right as I get up to help him, Kaylee who has been what we would probably describe as mothering him, started running in very uh, highly aroused, excited body language, tail up, eyes bright, ears up, ran in and began biting him. 
while he's flailing. So now I am holding back a full-size cattle dog while trying to support a puppy with one hand to keep him from breaking his neck. And she and Kaylee was um, repeatedly coming in and biting at the end that was flailing. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, no injury. And, you know, everyone managed to be safe. And Simon now has a very healthy respect for gates that move (laughs) at all, which is... (laughs) It's actually remarkable how respectful he is of the gates that you've got in your house. Yeah. Thank goodness. Because he was starting to climb them. So... So you're saying that's a training procedure, potentially, to teach them to respect Uh, Absolutely. I'm going to package that. You can expect my webinar. The gate gate entrapment method, TM. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Gem. Gate entrapment method. Yes. (laughs) Gem by Lisa Mullinax. (laughs) Webinar impending. Okay. Right. So (laughs) her primal instinct... To murder a trapped animal kicked in and that's what she was doing. That's right. essentially what would be happening if we called it predatory drift. Do you disagree with that? I don't disagree. And I think most people would have defined this as predatory drift. Yes. And why? There are some characteristics. Um, for one, this was not a defensive behavior. There was no... She closed the distance. She, she came to distance. him. Right. There was no, there were no indications of any body language that was anxious or fearful or, you know, generally what we might consult call concerned about it before escalating. It was just a Mm -hmm. rapid run in and bite. So I think there would be that piece. And then the other piece that I observed was what it was like after. And, you know, any trainers here who have worked with dogs that have a bite or aggression history towards people have probably heard uh, their clients say he like he knew what he did was wrong because he was really, really upset after mm. or he just went in his crate and stayed there the rest of the night. And, you know, something to indicate that that was a traumatic experience for the dog as well, even though they were the aggressor. And in this indication, in this situation, that was not the case. As soon as it was over, as soon as Simon was freed, Kaylee returned to normal. There was no indication that even though in that moment, because <laughs> the risk of that situation, I was I was not my positive trainer self, mm-hmm, right? I was mm-hmm. trying to save the puppy. So, you know, I was yelling. I was forceful at keeping her away, which you might think, a dog that is anxious in that situation may then be more reluctant or more anxious in their interaction shortly after that. Okay. So the definition being an interaction moves from social to looking like predation. If, if predatory drift is a phenomenon that exists in pet dogs, then we might say this was that. Right. I, you know, I think that, and and some people might say, because I'm just already thinking of, you know, the butts, as I have as well, but they weren't interacting at the time. That was not a social So that's, right, so that's one, one little bugaboo, right? I right? think that we could argue that they have an established social relationship and therefore right. they didn't need to be interacting in order for it to right. 
flip, take a turn. Right. So let um, me. The other. Yeah, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. I, I was going to say it. the other, but we are talking about a cattle dog. Mm. We are talking about a dog that has been selected to rush in and bite. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. That's, and that's Kaylee, definitely a thing. That's one of the points that I want to make. Yeah. Yeah. And Kaylee has had and still has in her new home a history of um, wonderful interactions with dogs at the dog park and at other settings until they start running. Oh, tell me more and about when that. when they start running, you know, if they ran a little bit and paused, you know, typical play, she would chase and then... And then they would pause and everything would de-escalate. If the other dog started to get concerned about her pursuit and ran faster, same body language, an escalation in terms of the intensity of her pursuit and her fixation until that dog stopped. So very, very similar behavior in those situations. Mm, so some and folks would say then she's simply prone to predatory drift. Maybe. Maybe. That's what I Is think some folks drift? might say. But right. I'm going to push on that. I mean, you know I'm going to push on it in general because I think it's fake. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, really I always do. <laughs> I always do. Um, sometimes to my detriment. So in the case of the dog park, I think the same things going on that went on in your house that day. I think neither of them were predation. Okay. So let's shift back to definition of predation is the killing of one organism by, by another for food with the outcome being food. We're going to really, if you're, if you're bothered by this, when we're talking about pet dogs, cause you're like, but eh, selective breeding, just hang on. We're going to get into (laughs) it. We're going to get into it. She wasn't trying to kill anything. She was biting. But was she like trying to grab his neck and kill thrash him? Like, did she not get that far because you stopped her? Has she ever rolled and bit the back of the neck of another dog in the dog park and went to kill thrash? Like, I don't think any of that happened. You wouldn't have taken her to the dog park if you had seen anything like that ever again. They were all inhibited bites and they were in both scenarios. They were to the back end of the dog. Mm, oh, fascinating. A healer biting the back end. Shocking. Okay. Let's lean a little bit on the principle of parsimony being that the simplest answer is probably the right one. I do find that to be true. Although I love talking to my colleagues and my friends in dogs about more complicated answers that might be. Sure. Leaning on the the principle of parsimony that the simplest answer is probably the right one makes us better practitioners most of the time. Couldn't we say that being a herding type dog, her natural inclination is actually to go towards and control chaos? This is a simple way that I usually describe the mind of herding dogs. Right. And that being a specific type, an Australian cattle dog, using her mouth is the way that she's going to do that, using her teeth. Yes. And couldn't we just say that's what was happening? She was like, that's got to stop right now. That's a lot. And I'm going to stop it. I, yes, I agree. Whether, whether it was that has to stop or 
this is fun. This is what I was made for. <laughs> I think it's both. I think it's both things. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's this has to stop and, oh, let me be the girl to do it. I mean, that's how, yep. that's how a cattle dog is. Border right. collies are a little bit like, oh, well, if you're going to take care of it, I'll just be here. Um, uh-huh. I'll let you take care. Cattle dogs are like, get out of my way. Right. Corgis <laughs> get out of my way. Border collies, yeah. Aussies get out of my way. Border collies are like, well, if, uh, Sam's going to do it, that's fine. I'll go take these sheep over here. Like they're just so conflict averse. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably why, gosh, if we dug into like, we don't have this data and we want to have it. We don't have like breed data on behaviors that are being called right. being described as predatory drift. If we did, I think we would see cattle dogs show up in it. So that's how I would describe it. I She has never made killing type. She did not make killing type bites. She did not. She has not done killing type actions. Don't worry. It's just my puppy crunching a water bottle and I'm just going to let it go. <laughs> Do it. Because she's not screaming. So Sacrifice the yeah, audio. That border collie I was we talking about. <laughs> That's not her. She's a get out of my way kind of girl. So that's how I would describe it. And what we're going to keep circling back to is like, does it matter if I call it one thing and you call it another, as long as we are on the same page about what to do about it? Right. And, and in this scenario, it didn't matter what it was called. I anticipated it, managed it, avoided it, you know, Dog parks were not for her because she doesn't need to be Kaylee, the terror of the dog park. Yeah. Right. You made some changes. You kept everybody safe from there forward. That's what you needed to do. A BMOD plan was not necessary. It was completely circumstantial. Like, I don't even know what you would do. Right. You'd just trap Simon intentionally in counter condition, right? That's. Yes. Yeah. Counter condition both of them, obviously. You'd be right. Feed, he, he could have like a licky mat while he was trapped, and then um, she could. You guys, we are joking. This is me and Lisa. Yes. This is just so you know, that's a joke. I devised various traps for his head, and we gradually mm-hmm. escalated yeah, the level of thrashing and screaming. It's really important right? part of the procedure is that you gradually yes. escalate. Um. Now, okay. Okay. Now, for. Anyone who says, no, this is, I still think this is predatory drift. Sure. Which a lot of people probably are. And, you know, I'm agnostic on this. I That's actually why you're here. I didn't want another person who just strongly (laughs) agrees with me. So. Um, So down the road, I rehomed Kaylee with a, an incredible family. Now, instead of living in an apartment, she's living on a farm. She has ducks and chickens that mm-hmm. she was able to freely interact with when they were babies mm-hmm. chicks and ducklings and always very gentle with them right so she coexists with mm-hmm. these animals mm-hmm. okay so there's one additional piece second additional piece while she um shortly after she went to live with this family they were in the backyard and the mother was there with her at the time, I think six-year-old daughter. And they were in the backyard. Kaylee looked up at a tree, leapt straight into the air, grabbed a squirrel, shook it, and killed it. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is what I love. The daughter said, later said, well, 
I'm sad for the squirrel, but I'm glad Kaylee got such good exercise. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is why they're perfect. That's adorable. So we have two additional pieces of data that I did not have at that time because she never had the opportunity for either of those, mm-hmm. both with things that could be considered prey and two completely different responses. Mm-hmm. So we know she has she has the capability and has demonstrated going in for a kill mm-hmm. with an animal, right? I'm not saying we can come to any conclusion based on either one of those, but that's more data we have about her. And can we say because she killed the squirrel and she does do that, then this incident with Simon was not predatory in nature. Right. Or can we, you know, but then she doesn't show any predation with these babies that she helped raise just like she helped raise Simon. So therefore it was predatory because of Simon's behavior. Right. And I'm not saying we can say either one. And truly I agree with you. I don't think we can say definitively anything. I am not agnostic simply because I don't think that's my nature. Right. I <laughs> feel strongly about basically everything. So my opinion is that this is not real, but I fully agree with you that we can't really say, and like, I do agree that like, we don't, we do not know. And I think we're going to keep coming back to that. I know what I believe, but I acknowledge that we don't actually know. Right. And the more we talk about it, the less it seems like we know, which is why I think it's important for us to keep talking about it. Because it, the more we talk about it, the more complicated it becomes. Some people would be saying, and we're going to, I like I'd said, we're going to really talk about this. But some people would say, well, it was predatory behavior because hurting is predatory behavior. And so even if, and I didn't say it was hurting, by the way, I said, it was controlling. Right. And, but they would say, well, she ran in and she bit him in his back end. Isn't that cattle dog hurting behavior? And then therefore, isn't it predatory because hurting behavior is modified predatory behavior? Like people are going to say that. And I'm, even though I feel strongly, I'm not interested in like dying on this hill. And so if that's how you think of those things, then that's fine for you. It's not how I think of hurting behavior. And it's not how I think of a lot of the behaviors that we refer to as kind of modified prey sequence behavior, but we're going to dig into that in a minute. So I think let's talk about your other example first. Okay. Which is so the other example, classically uh, a pit bull and a chihuahua. <laughs> classically very similar scenario. Well, identical scenario, really mm. um, pit bull or bully breed mix lived with chihuahua shared sleeping spaces. Um, The report was that there was grooming between the dogs. I, and this was a case a long, long, long time ago. So I was not asking the questions that I would ask now. Mm -hmm. Right. But there was grooming again, clearly social relationship enough Mm -hmm. there to say it was a social relationship, not coexistence. Mm -hmm. Um, they were in the backyard, chihuahua, stuck head through the fence, backed out, collar got stuck, screaming and flailing. 
and the pit bull ran over and killed the chihuahua. Devastating. So, absolutely. Oh, it was terrible. Almost exact same scenario, different outcome. Could have been a different outcome simply because of lack of human intervention plus major size disparity. Of course. Yep. So, and I do think in most cases of predatory drift or what people are calling predatory drift, I see a major size disparity in most of the cases. Yes. There was a size disparity between Kaylee and Simon. There's a size disparity between this pit and this chihuahua, obviously. I can't think of a single example, in fact, in which it was a small dog directed at a larger dog. Or the two dogs were roughly the same size, even though predators in nature take down animals much bigger than them all the time. Look at a wolf pack taking down a full-grown elk. I mean, that's... Right. Look at... You know, any, any nature documentary, you've got a lion taking, you know, the water buffalo, like it's, that's, that size disparity is not a rule in nature. Right. I think that it's about us as humans thinking of things a certain way when there's a size disparity. When I just think the size disparity means there's more likelihood for death or severe injury. And when right. there's a death, we want to call it this. We want to label it this phenomenon a lot of the time. Right. And I think why? Because it makes us feel better about dogs if there's this mystical switch that can flip versus like, no, he just killed his buddy. Like he just right. was, you know, had whatever the feelings were, killed his friend. Right. Now, I mean... We talked about this before. I know a lot of people, and even we in our discussions before, were questioning truly how much does breed type play a role? Not breed specifically, but breed type. Mm-hmm. We have a herding dog versus a terrier. Mm-hmm. Herding dogs originally were not selected to grab, bite, kill. Correct. Even if yeah. they were selected for biting, yeah. terriers were. Yeah. Are. Yeah. When and does that pit bulls selected? I don't know the history of this. You said it was kind of a pit bull mix or a bully type right. mix. So we don't know the history of that dog, but an actual American pit bull terrier, their history is fighting other dogs. So that makes right. so much sense. And question I have to that question mm. is, does that affect the diagnosis for lack of a better word that this Mm. was predatory drift versus does that just affect the outcome like the chihuahua died because of this dog's breed type versus we label it predatory drift because of the breed type and the dogs involved right like which one is true right yeah i don't know and like i'm gonna call that a case of just good old-fashioned again like the thing is screaming something inside this dog made it want to go bite the screaming thing i mean we buy them toys that make screamy squeaky noises because they like to bite toys like that right and because of the major size disparity in the circumstances the outcome was tragic okay so talking terrier versus herding yada 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 (laughs) let's Let's actually dig into 
the quote unquote modified prey sequence in the domestic dog because one of the arguments in favor of predatory drift is essentially how can we use other animals as a model when looking at domestic dogs? For instance, how can the accepted definition of predation be applicable here in this species that we have really screwed with their predatory sequence via selective breeding. That's one of the arguments. I think, well, first of all, let's talk about what that means. I, not everybody might know. So when we look at behaviors that we've selected for in domestic dogs, so for instance, herding behaviors, for instance, hunt, point, retrieve types of behaviors, we are looking at behaviors that might look predatory and might look like partial prey sequences. Prey sequence being search, hunt, stalk, chase, kill, consume. Hopefully I got that right. I didn't stop to look it up, everybody. Don't come at me because it's roughly right, even if it's wrong. (laughs) Right. Or similar variations that you will see depending on So if you look at like a border collie herding, they are very stocky. They have chasey, stocky stuff, but they don't have kill. You know, they don't have go in, attack, kill, consume. And so... Right. Or I, if they do, they are not bred. They're immediately culled from the population. Yeah. So that's how this happened, right? So I think Ray Coppinger talked a lot about these behaviors as being modified prey sequence behaviors. I... Don't love calling it that. Here's why. I don't think, so for instance, my dog Felix has half of his pedigree is really well-established sheep herding dogs in the U.S. So we can assume that he hasn't been on, he hasn't been on sheep. You all can attack me for that later, but he, we could presume that he would have decent ability on stock and he has also killed and eaten chickens before on more than one occasion. So is his prey sequence modified? Clearly not. Clearly not. And yet he has all of the quota, the like supposed modified prey sequence types of behaviors that I call lovingly sticky, stocky bullshit in border collies. He's got all that stuff. Right. But he's also absolutely committed what we would call like he has behaved in ways that anyone would describe as predation. Yes. And he comes from a, a very good, long traceable line Mm -hmm. of dogs that have been carefully selected Mm -hmm. for technically a modified prey sequence. Right. Right. If we're going to call it, if we're calling Yes. As opposed to, Kaylee, shelter dog. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, you know, the case of the pit bull chihuahua. I don't know that it was a purebred pit bull. I don't know that it was a purebred staffy. I don't know yeah. if it had anything else in there. Yeah. And I I think, you know, when we're talking about this modified prey sequence, it's sometimes discussed as if every dog, right, follows those rules. 
But really when Coppinger is talking about it, at least what, what I took from it, from his books and, and hearing him speak, it seems to be, he is talking about more about dogs like Felix, more about purebred dogs bred for function. Yes. He is talking about that. Yeah. And you know, uh, this may muddy the waters and that's kind of the point of this discussion is does it apply at the same level? Can we apply it that way at mixed breed dogs? Some of which we don't even know what the other breeds are, right? They haven't had a DNA test or some of these happened when there weren't DNA tests. How does that affect our theory that these, all of these dogs have a modified prey sequence? Right. I again think that saying that these are modified prey behaviors is actually giving humans too much credit in this evolution. Yeah. Yes, they evolved through artificial selection. They also evolved naturally. But that's another thing that Ray Coppinger wrote extensively about is the is his theory of evolution of the domestic dog, which honestly, maybe that's like a whole other episode. If you were alive, I would send him an email and say, let's talk about this. But because we have been kind of fed this fantasy that he actually calls the Pinocchio theory, and I love it, of the wolf showed up at the caveman's, you know, fireside and they struck a deal. Like we've kind of been fed that. And Coppinger was like, eh, Maybe not. Here's maybe what really happened. And um, I think that his theory is way more plausible than that. But he is looking at, you know, specifically one of the things that he looked at and was fascinated by was livestock guardian dogs versus herding type dogs. So you have your border collie and you've got your Maremma and they live on the same farm. They're raised by the same people, roughly the same environment, and they act completely different around stock. Right. So... We are getting into some muddy waters here, but essentially, I don't believe that we have intentionally modified the prey sequence. Like, I don't think that we're that sophisticated. I think we've selected for behaviors, obviously, that we need and like. We've also selected for the ability to shape those behaviors in the dogs. Some of them are shapeable one direction versus the other direction. And we have selected them thus far. And then we started selecting them for what they look like and et cetera, et cetera. Like it's just, yes, we have done a lot to the genetics here that we're, that we're dealing with. I don't think that that's a reason that we can say that there's a magical switch that flips when certain contexts are available and a dog attacks another dog with intent to kill and eat it. Right. And one of our questions as we were discussing this before was, do we have any other examples of a behavior in a dog that we define as switching on? Right. And if we don't, what does that say? And I think that the only behaviors that we do are those behaviors that fall under that modified prey sequence label. So if you've ever seen a litter of pointer puppies be shown a bird wing on a fishing wire the first time, and they're, you know, a breeder is flitting the bird wing around and then they stop it and all the little puppies go on point. 
Right. That's something that we could talk about. The difference being, so yes, that's the environment kind of bringing something out. Here's the difference though. The puppy didn't go from feeling one way about the bird wing to feeling another way about the bird wing. That is the difference. That is what I am calling bullshit on, basically, is that right. I don't think the pit bull saw the chihuahua as his friend that morning and as his meal that evening. I don't think that happened. And therefore, I don't think you get to call it predatory drift because predation, true predation is with the outcome of killing and eating in, in, right. in its motivation. People, the, another huge argument here, Lisa, is that dogs kill stuff and don't eat it all the time. Right. Did Kaylee eat the squirrel? We, so no, but because. But didn't you take it? Right. Didn't you take it away? Right. Like how often they, would right. they actually eat it if left to their own devices? I think more often than we like to think about. Right. So, okay. Some people may find this disturbing. Um, <laughs> Let's have it. I have friends who work in animal control. Mm -hmm. There was a case that I was told about not that long ago of a home with five, let's say, I'm going to say five chihuahuas. Maybe there were four. Maybe there were eight. I don't remember. And the owner died of natural causes. Oh, God. By the time animal control was called to the scene, they found that person's femur bone. Oh my God. In another room. <laughs> I now, mean, this is my first podcast. Right? This is my first podcast release <laughs> in September. Therefore, spooky season has begun. Therefore, there these go, stories, folks. these stories are open. We are, you can tell your um just know. You, your chihuahua may not kill you, but they might eat you <laughs> <laughs> once you're gone. <laughs> and maybe they only um, won't kill you because they can't. Um, so, yeah, and what are you going to call that? I'm going to call it I mean, survival. Hunger. Yeah. I'm going to call it hunger. Exactly. So It's and scavenging, right? Right. And my argument, again, comes around to... Um, have an example of a greyhound actually killing a household cat not predatory like we wouldn't label that predatory drift necessarily and right. so not really what we're talking about but didn't eat the cat and i say sure but didn't he like eat a bowl of kibble that morning like he met one of his needs which was to chase and kill this small animal mm -hmm. his other needs were met right he ate but he had the need to chase and kill a small animal why? Well, because he's a greyhound. I don't know. Like, there's just right. so much here. There's so much going on here that I think, again, we are treating domestic dogs as the exception, and I don't like it. So right. if your cat, if your house cat, kills your pet mouse and doesn't eat it, are you going to call it a modified prey sequence of the domestic cat? Like you're not, you're just going to go, well, that's because he ate fancy feast and he likes that. Like, you know, I right. don't know. That's what you would right. say because you don't, people don't like make exception of the domestic right. cat that often. Cats one, are of, cat. one of the questions that I was asked in, um, after the other one was released 
shout out to Greta Kaplan, who asked me this question. Hi, Greta. And who talked for me for a long time, actually, about all of these thoughts. If you've got a working terrier, let's say like a German hunting terrier type, like a legit terrier that hasn't really been commodified by the show ring yet. And that thing goes to ground and it kills 20 rodents, just goes, grabs it, kills it, moves on to the next one. Is a killing machine. Doesn't eat any of them. Do we call it predation or not? Right. To and which to weird. which I specifically said to Greta, I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um and and this was so a conversation I had with a client and mutual friend of ours who is a human psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um and in in talking about humans, like one of our questions was are are there varying levels of multiple levels of predation as there are in humans, right? We have humans that are predatory, maybe just out to take your money. Mm-hmm. We call that predatory. Mm-hmm. We have other humans that are the subject of many, many podcasts and documentaries mm-hmm. who are seeking out humans and killing them and sometimes eating them. Yeah. Right. And and so is is the definition of predation that's out there even accurate when we're talking about dogs? Which is, that's the big question. And that's why Greta asked me, well, what are you going to call it with these terriers? Like, are you not going to call that predation? And the answer is like, I think that again, yeah, through selective breeding, we've, we've said these ones do the killing part really well. So we're going to select for those ones. We right. didn't really select out the eating. I think actually if you left the terrier with the pile of dead animals and you didn't feed it anything else, it would have. And in fact, I think if it went into the hunt hungry, it probably would eat them. Right. I would call that predation more readily than I would call herding predation. Right. Right. And I think um, it's because of the killing part, because that's part of the definition of predation is killing. Right. It's not, it's not attacking. It's not chasing. Right. It's killing. And also to add to spooky season, please do. dogs don't just kill other dogs. Dogs kill infants. Oh my God. Infants. They have. Yeah, they have. And some of the cases, there have been some cases of dogs that, after they killed the infant and police came in, found a severely emaciated dog. So the dog was mm. clearly starving. There have in also cases. There have been cases yeah. too of actual consumption of right. infants by dogs. Um, right. And other cases, the dogs were healthy, well-fed, not in that scenario. Yeah. So not always. It's not a rule. Right. Right. I, I mean, predation is just, such a complex concept mm-hmm. right and like we're talking about here the the definition that we have right now is leaves a lot of room for leaves a lot of questions to be answered it leaves a lot of questions and it's something that you and I talked about that I think is worth bringing up is 
Again, this concept of drift is kind of my problem. I absolutely think that dogs can predate on other dogs. Absolutely, they can. Yes. It is the switch that I'm arguing. Yes. Gets turned on. Similarly, you've all seen in nature documentaries, predators sharing a watering hole with prey types of animals. You've seen the lion drinking from the same water that the herd of zebras are drinking from. Like we've all, we've all seen it. So are we going to say, okay, here they are sharing a resource. And then the next day the lion kills the same zebra that it shared a resource with the day before. Are we going to call that drift? Or are we just going to call it predation? So what, and what that comes down to and what's interesting to me is that it's the contingencies that define what's going on. So in the situation where they're all sharing water, why is that? That's because of the motivating operations at play. That's because thirst is the primary motivator and therefore consuming water, drinking, hydrating is the desired outcome is the desired contingency there. It wins out. So when you've got fat, happy domestic dog, doesn't need to kill to eat, but maybe is bored out of his skull and would really like to rip something apart or control something or just bite something in general, the motivating operations might be what's most important here and are probably what's most important for us as practitioners to pay attention to. Yes. One of the breeds that is named in frequent predatory drift situations, according to some of the comments in the uh, James Ha article that I will, that I did link in the original episode is the Belgian Malinois calling the Belgian Malinois a herding breed. In my opinion is um, incorrect, (laughs) but um, the correct, the correct classification is Maligator. (laughs) Which is in the water, by the way, and everybody's drinking the water and everybody (laughs) is in danger. That's right. As you know, there it's a breed that comes in different types. And the type that I'm thinking of and the type that is implicated here has been designed to want to bite stuff and to want to bite it hard. Okay. And that's putting it really simple, but that's the truth. And so if you have a case of a dog whose biting needs are extremely unmet because it's in a regular home and then they become agitated by the small dog, I'm not surprised that they grab it. Right. He's fed, so he doesn't eat it, but he doesn't get to bite stuff on a regular basis. And so he does bite and kill it. So again, it's, I think that it's about contingencies. I think it's about motivating operations. I don't think it's about, well, a switch flipped on because the little dog was screaming. Right. Right. Because we, I think, if you polled dog trainers, go uh-huh. to Clicker Expo and you send out a poll, I'm sure there are people out there who can come up with examples of a chihuahua killing something, right? Oh, certainly. A or, right, a snake, right? Like, I think we can find examples of this in every breed. And so as we were talking, is this, like, there's so many questions. Is it a drift? Is it switch? 
Or is it just, like you said, motivating operations? Or is it opportunity? Kaylee, when she was living with me, was living in an apartment and always out on leash. Yep. She was never in a situation where she was freely moving around a yard where there was squirrels and and things that she had. She just didn't have opportunities. Right. Right. So in these cases, was that a switch or was it always there, but the opportunity had not presented itself? And I think some people, Lisa, would say, what's the difference? And I mean, kind of hard to parse out what the difference is. Like, yeah, sure. Which is why, again, we don't know. We don't know if this is a real phenomenon or not. We're talking about an internal function that none of us can see or Mm -hmm. measure. You don't get to cut open the dog and go, look, there's the predatory drift. I knew it. Right. (laughs) But the bottom line and what we keep returning to is, does this, does the way that you label it change your intervention or not? No. And so for me, if your intervention is still smart... If your goals are still about keeping everybody safe in the future, if you're still being a good practitioner, I don't care what you call it. Personally, I don't think this is the most harmful label, but like, let's say I walk in and I don't label it for people. I just go, okay, here's what happened. Here's what we're going to do to prevent it from happening in the future. Right. And move on with my life. Am I a better practitioner then than if I spend 15 minutes explaining predatory drift to my client? No. Also, let's get real. It doesn't. Would it only take 15 minutes? Because those people are going to have questions. Right. I worry that you might actually waste time. I worry about that. Yeah. I also worry about scaring clients into thinking that this switch could flip on, on them. Or, mm-hmm. or their like, child. Would or... it be necessary for you to be afraid of placing Kaylee in that home with those small kids? Right. And, you know, now, because I, I did have the, um, you know, I also had the experience of mm-hmm. seeing her around many, many children. Oh, yeah, and, totally. I, right? I think you, like, yeah. you were very informed. But let's say that you, and you were really informed about Kaylee. And... Right. You know those kids too. Right. So always going in with like all of the information that you have rather than like, I think that I do worry about us slapping a label on something when we're not sure of what the label is. We're not sure if it's real. Right. And having that change perceptions negatively. I I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, let's say, well, and Kaylee was in the shelter where I was working at the time. That's how I came across her. Mm -hmm. She was a stray, so I had no history. What if she had come in to the shelter with this history? Mm. Would, and, and in the shelter, we talked about, we used the label and definition of predatory drift. How would that have influenced our our placement decisions for this dog. Right. A lot of shelters would say this dog cannot live with small children. They might. Right. And, and I think that's okay. I don't, like, I don't disagree. Mm-hmm. 
Right. I, I think that, um, you know, it does, it always limits, it reduces how many options that dog's, that dog has. But if that's the reason we're making that call Mm -hmm. is because of this construct, then are we, are we possibly not harming that dog, but right we're probably extending that dog's stay because their adoption mm. pool is limited. Yeah. It's and- like, is it necessary? And I think in that case, I mean, you know, me, I'm pretty, um, I think that those things should be taken really seriously in shelters, obviously, but. And you know, I agree a hundred percent. You, you really do. I think that it really comes down to, we don't know. We need, if we, if we want to know, we need data on this. Like we need people to actually be keeping track of these cases and what all of the details are because we just don't have this information and we don't have the really important information of like, if the dog has a history of what we might call a predatory drift incident, do they then like, are they then not safe around children? Are they then not safe around small dogs in all circumstances? Are they then not safe? Yada, yada, yada. Like we don't know. Right. Like once, if it, Let's say if it were a switch and it's flipped. Is it now flipped on? Does it stay? For life? Yes. Yeah. Does it stay in the on position? Or could we just say the dog has now had a hugely reinforcing experience? Right. That they may choose to engage in again, which right. is usually how I like to think is kind of, okay, now you just learned how fun that is. So now mm-hmm. I need to protect you from having that experience again. Right. Yeah. Which is the same with kind of all predatory behaviors. Like I work very hard to try to make sure my dogs don't ever chase wildlife. Right. Because the second they do, they know how fun it is. Right. Right. You know, I think, you know, in thinking about this, I mean, when was this first introduced? It was early 2000s. I don't have the exact date. I do know that the predation in pet dogs. It's, it's a DVD or a, a recording available right. from yeah. Dogwise. It's from Jean Donaldson where she talks about it. That's 2006. So we're talking okay. a long time ago. And so what I, what I do want to say was at that time I was a baby trainer. Yeah. And same. <laughs> yeah. I was just a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Um, <laughs> I wasn't an infant. I was a teenager. <laughs> right. And learning, like, I had never heard of this. I had no, no concept that a dog could possibly, like a big dog could kill a small dog. Right. I would yeah. have been like the average person, like, oh my God, look how cute this is. Right. Yeah. So it introduced the concept and the risk. Yeah. In which was not really being discussed. Yeah. And I learned about it actually, because in my early twenties, I worked in dog daycares and dog daycares use this in their education materials for staff as to why we separate big and small dogs. Right. And, and I, I'm so still I saying, think... yes, separate big and small dogs. Yes, please. But probably not because um, of this. Well, and, and so I think that concept and the precautions that it taught us the and, and what it taught us about risk, I think all of that is still 
valid and important. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it was a drift, a switch, a flip is what we're questioning. That is what we're questioning. We're not questioning, like, we don't think anybody's making anything up as far as the behaviors that are occurring. I'm questioning that there is a switch between social, like from social to predation. That's what I'm questioning. You know, and the other thing we haven't talked about is that cases, you know, some of us hear about these cases second or third hand. Sometimes, you know, it's just a conversation with a potential client on the phone that we don't always have a big history. And, and like you said, we don't have any clear data mm-hmm. on this. And so we need to question too, like the pit bull and the chihuahua, that information I gave you is really the only information I have. So was it really the strong social relationship that it was portrayed as? Right. Did, right. Right. Did one dog just tolerate the other dog sharing the bed because maybe there weren't any other soft surfaces in yep. the home? Again, was, we're sharing right, the watering hole. Right. Yep. Was the grooming that was discussed again, was that tolerated? Mm-hmm. What did, what did it look like? Like there's a lot of information we have there or we don't have there that again, that definition that it was social and then it flipped, right? It could have been slightly more than coexisting, but not a strong, right? Right. right? We don't know. Strong relationship right. in that term. So, yeah. So it makes it really hard to say this is what it was versus here's what I would not do if you have a large breed that we know has that terrier in them, right? And and a very small breed. Do not Yeah, and I would go so far as to right? and I said this in the in the first episode, I said, here's just my recommendations. I am a big I think the size disparity should be taken seriously regardless of breeds. Right. I don't think that big and small dogs should be left alone together. I might even wager that maybe you shouldn't leave dogs alone together, period, but, you know, without barriers. But, you know, like Felix and Rhea are probably the best friends in my, like, house. They get along really nicely. Felix has really good deference behaviors towards Rhea. They they just get along really well. And I don't leave them together unsupervised. Because he's got like right. 15, he's only got like 15 pounds on her. Like he's not, he's not a huge dog, but it's not, I just have heard, right. too, like I've just had too many cases that were my personal nightmare, which is that you come home yeah. and you don't know what happened, but one of your dogs is dead or one of your dogs right. is severely injured. Right. And like, yes. I'm not, I'm just not willing to be that, to have that happen because I think I would drive off a cliff, right. but it's, I just don't think that it's wise. And then, you know, I also don't, I don't want big dogs playing with small dogs in wide open spaces either. Like I'm just, I am really careful about it all. I am right picky about the play interactions that are going to happen. Like I, if I have a couple of small dogs playing and somebody wants to bring their big dog in, I say no, like it's just. To me, that's right. like, that's just a safety thing. 
It's not about no, because your dog is a sighthound or no, you're because your dog is a pit bull. It is no, because your dog is way too much bigger than mine. Like they're just not right. Well matched. So I do think protecting small dogs better from big dogs, like rather than just being like, Oh look, they're best buds is wise of us. Right. And, and you know, there are going to be people that say, I have two dogs and they're fine. Right. There's never a problem. They don't, they're big dog, small dog. And yes, that may be true. That may totally be true. And honestly, have but at that it. Does not like mean, I am not here to control your life. Have at it. Right. But that doesn't mean there is not an increased risk. There absolutely is an increased risk when you have a size disparity like that. And so, right. you know, there's just a power differential. Like it just is what it is. Right. So I think that, you know, circling back and to wrap us up, if this is a term that you believe that you use well, that you, and it's a phenomenon that you believe that you observe, like I'm not here to stop you. I think that as long as we're all being good practitioners, we can kind of use whatever labels we want to. I don't think this label is particularly harmful, like some of them could be. And I think let's keep talking about it. If you really, really believe in this, perhaps then you want to be a person who compiles some data. Like we need some data. So if you really, really think I'm wrong and really, really think that this is a real thing, I, you know, pull together a database, talk to somebody who knows how to do that. I certainly don't know how to do that, but. Right. As an industry, we've gotten so much, we've gotten so good at moving away from labels, right? Mm Mm-hmm. We're trying to, I mean, we're actively trying to, and sometimes a label is like the best way for you to communicate with another person. And therefore I think that they're fine a lot of the time, but saying, well, this is an instance of predatory drift when like, you can't say that for sure. I get a little prickly because I think that that's for you to talk to your colleagues about. That's for you to be like, okay, here's the case. What do you think? Do you think that looks like predatory drift, whatever? I don't think that's for you to tell your clients that this phenomenon took place when, when you're speaking to them as an expert and you don't actually know. Right. I think we can communicate the risk without the label. We absolutely can. And we can help them be safe in the future without saying, I'm an expert and I'm telling you that this is the phenomenon that occurred when you don't actually know that for sure. All right. Probably there's just going to be more discussion on the internet about this and that's fine. And that's what we want. We want more discussion as opposed to a definitive, this is what it is. No, it's not. Yeah. Keep continuing to talk about it has broadened my thinking about it. It didn't change my mind, but it's certainly broadened the way that I think about it. And it broadened the way that I think about what we, what we commonly refer to as, um, modified prey sequence behaviors. I think that that's actually the way that I think about that now has been informed by this conversation. And that is always, always important to have. And who knows, I might release a part three where I'm like, y'all, I was wrong. Look at this evidence. Like I, fine, you know, let me have it. Lisa, thank you for bringing your insight to this. Thank you for bringing your stories to it. Thank you for being agnostic. (laughs) Let people know where they can find you. 
you can find me on um, Facebook at um, Fort Paws University. Um, you can find me on my website at um, serenityk9.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.